today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. In case you uh, haven't been aware, Doug Ford has uh, tried very hard to reduce the size of Toronto City Council, uh, came through with a bill that was thrown out in court, uh, and then today trying to, um, uh, I guess, invoke the, no- the notwithstanding clause. That has created a lot of fuss. To talk more about all of this, Alan Carter is with us, Global Anchor and Queen's Park Bureau Chief. He is with us now. Uh, Alan, thanks so much for taking the time. We appreciate this. Oh, hey, thanks, Scott. Appreciate being on. So what is the buzz down there? What, how big a deal is this? I think it's a huge deal in many respects. It, um, it, it signals a whole bunch of different things that uh, go far beyond the issue at hand, which would be the cutting of Toronto City Council. It raises a great deal of other questions about how the Premier uh, plans to conduct business, um, the statements he made on Monday about his willingness to use the notwithstanding clause in future cases as well, really, um, I, I think it, it ch- has changed the paradigm o- about what this government is willing to do to enact its agenda. So uh, is Doug Ford on an island here? Uh, we haven't heard a lot from other party members. We haven't heard a lot of supporters. Uh, we've certainly heard a lot of opposition to this. Is he on an island? Is he isolated here? Uh, what is everybody else thinking about this? Well, I, I don't think he's on an island at all. Uh, it will be interesting to see. I'm just watching now as the uh, ministers are emerging from Queen's Park from the question period now and speaking. So that'll be that'll be a first chance for the press to ask questions directly of the front bench of the Ford government, the ministers, about saying, are you sure you're on board with this? But uh, so far, there seems to be absolute unity in the PC caucus about doing this. And I think you would be remiss if you didn't recognize a strong sentiment amongst conservatives, and I don't think just amongst conservatives, but a strong sentiment amongst the public that the judiciary perhaps oversteps its bounds when it comes to making policy. And I think that when the premier says, I'm elected and a judge is appointed, you get to decide whether or not I get to stay in four years. I think that that resonates with a lot of people. So, our, again, we've heard a lot of opposition, not much the other way. Does Doug Ford have those supporters? Are there people out there that, that, that don't care about the size of city council or, the, or what's being done? Well, but then again, you're conflating two issues here, yeah, aren't you? Yep, yep, yep. Right? I mean... Do I care about the size of city council? I don't think that, first of all, when the premier is asked about why is he doing this, um, you know, he, he says, well, every legal expert said we have the right to do it. Mm-hmm. Except for, well, that's not what the ruling took issue with. The ruling never said that the government doesn't have the power. Of course the provincial government is overseas municipalities, and the city of Toronto is the creation of the province of Ontario. So therefore, absolutely, the province of Ontario has the right to do what it's doing. Right. The ruling said you can't do it after the race is already underway. Right. Is there a right way to do this from a political standpoint? Uh, was he brilliant to do this now as opposed to letting this go through process, doing the consultation, and trying to reintroduce it. Would he have got that through? 
with no, any with any more support. He doesn't have any choices here, right? No, so, so keep in mind what's happening. They're, they've come back today. They're going to reintroduce Bill 5. They're going to wrap it in the saran wrap of the notwithstanding clause, which means it's now, you know, impervious to legal challenges uh, on charter rights, specifically on charter rights. Keep in mind the notwithstanding clause before we get too carried away about, you know, oh, democracy is being, you know, torn apart. Uh, the notwithstanding clause can only be used in specific cases. And the premier has said, where it's bought, where I can use it, I will. Um, but the, the fact is, is that he has gone ahead and done this in a case where he doesn't have to. But if he doesn't do it right now, it means that he loses face and 47 counselors get elected. Bingo, because yeah. the election is right now. He, yeah. he has no choice. Mm-hmm. So you believe there is a segment of the population over and above what this issue is in around Toronto Council that believe that uh, uh, that that issues that are supposed to be political and decided by political leaders are being decided by the courts, and Doug Ford is taking a position on this. I can draw the parallel, although not really the same, with the pipeline and Justin Trudeau trying to get it to get that through. Does this show that Doug Ford's willing to to get out there and fight for something? As opposed to just, you know, let 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 every let special interests take over this. Well, there's a term that's thrown around for this kind of thing called virtue signaling, and a lot of people think that that is much of the motivation here. Is that keep in mind that uh, the Premier Ford is surrounded by a number of former Harperites. and there were there was a great schism within the Harper government about. Uh, the then Prime Minister's reluctance to use the notwithstanding clause to stop things like assisted dying or any other of the contentious legal rulings that came from the Supreme Court that were not on side with the ideology of the party. And so here we have the new conservative banner uh, holder, the, the, the guy waving the flag is going to be Doug Ford, and he has signaled to conservatives across this country, not just here in Ontario, but across this country, that he is a leader willing to use, as he has said, any legal tool in his power to be able to forward his agenda. And that includes the notwithstanding clause. So does this sell with the majority of Ontarians? Well, I tell you right now, we have our, our colleagues at Ipsos are in the field trying to get an answer to that right now. I'm not going to... I'm not going to guess at what the public will say, uh, you know, and I don't even know if the, when we see the polling, what it will say. But I'm telling you that if you're watching, if whatever media you're consuming or whatever you're hearing is telling you nothing but, you know, uh, oh, there's opposition to this, I think that is only one side of the story. Uh, and very much like the leader south of the border, is this a, a, a silent majority, do you think? Or at least, no, that's a bad comparison. Do you think, forget the south of the border uh, comparison, do you think this is a silent majority that's, that, that's waiting to see how this plays out? Here's where the, the downfall, the trouble for, is for the Premier. As he virtue signals, if indeed that is his motivation... Or is his motivation a pure, uh, you know, um, grudge against City Hall? If the people of Ontario sense that 
uh, all of this political capital that he must expend to get this stuff through, and whether it's like we just saw the clearing of the the legislative chamber, the the gallery had to be cleared at question periods a day because of shouting and protests on the lawn and all the rest of this. I think people will tire of it because the you know people of Ontario don't really like conflict. They like stuff to get done. You know, we are we are a middle of the road province. We are right. That we vanilla is our number one flavor in this province. Let's not forget it. And people will get upset if it seems like chaos has come to Queens Park and he's not getting the premier's not getting what he needs to get done, and instead is too busy fighting these partisan wars. So uh, this was an issue that involved Toronto. We spoke earlier that uh, obviously that doesn't affect or concern the majority of Ontarians outside the city. However, now with this issue and the notwithstanding clause, has this got the rest of the province's attention or do they still view it the same way? Uh, let them see. What, let, let's see what gets done here. Oh, I, I think it's more than that. It's got, it's got the attention of the nation. It's, it's beyond provincial. It establishes uh, a precedent that we have not seen in this country, where a premier is willing to use a rarely used and controversial portion of the charter to be able to say no to courts. And we've only seen it outside of Quebec and one other province. Um, and I, I think that it it raises all kinds of questions about, well, will this then prompt any other populist, any other premier to then say, well, if we can do it there, we can do it here. Are people watching this and comparing uh, all politics and thinking, well, gee whiz, we got a prime minister that can't get a pipeline built. We got a, a premier that's going to get something done. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we got a premier. Think, we got a premier who's going to. He's not afraid to take on a judge. Not afraid to well, take on the courts. I think that I, I think that that's part of the calculation in the premier's office. That this is, you know, again, all part of a longer game to set up uh, the fight that's coming next year in the federal election, and with the possible imposition of a carbon tax. So, you know, all of this plays into that. You know, this, these are all the skirmishes that are leading up to what is expected to be a pretty big battle. Where is this one going? Uh, as you said, if, if it doesn't gain more steam for the opposition in the next day or two, will this peter out? No, it, it won't. Um, I mean, the fact is, is that this is going to pass. Yeah. It's going to take a couple of days. And I, I'm trying to get confirmation on it, but I do believe that the House is going to adjourn Monday and Tuesday for its annual uh, international plowing match. So just keep this in mind. Wow. That, that <laughs> this, thing is, this thing is so vital that we've called the House back and we're invoking a rarely con- used controversial element of the Charter. But we still got to go to the plowing match yeah. and you know, see if we can plow straight for all. We got to do that first. Uh, what will what will Toronto's municipal election end up looking like? How can this all logistically be done? Even though it, if it if it all gets rammed through, where does that leave the Toronto municipal election? Well, I think it's in chaos. It's in utter flames right now. We don't know who's running where. We have the situation where nominations were closed yesterday, and there was some speculation that some absolutely you know some big senior names in the downtown core again, majority of them being a 
the ones that the premier likes to call out by name, you know, Cressy, Leighton, that, you know, that they hadn't, they had not actually um, registered. And that there's these two tracks of registers. There's a, you can re- have registered for the previous 47 um, in, incarnation, or is it 25 or 20? Like, what is right. it? And so there's all of these, this, this just mass confusion about who even is registered to run. So what happens the rest of this afternoon? Uh, this afternoon, we're expecting the um, the actual the bill to be tabled later this afternoon. I'm hearing around three o'clock. Then, uh, once it's tabled, it gets voted on for first reading, which is you know sort of, sort of procedural. And then they begin a debate. Whether they actually begin debate today or not, I haven't had an update from the House leader, but it looks like they will begin debate uh, today and then tomorrow. The House doesn't sit on Friday. And speculation I'm hearing is, is that the final vote to push it through looks like Wednesday. Wednesday? So, Wednesday. wow. So uh, that, that trims another week off getting ready for that election. Uh, so then Wednesday, this he rams it through. It's a done deal. What happens after that, Alan? Uh, Toronto then has to scramble to rearrange its, its municipal election. But other than that, is it a go? That's it? Case That's closed? Case closed. There are, there's, there's, no, there's no way to appeal it. You and can't, you can't appeal something that's already been wrapped in the notwithstanding clause. So that's the way it sits, and Toronto is left trying to sort of clean this up and 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 present some sort of municipal election in October. Yeah, now the government, the provincial government, will say, "Hey, wait, it was back in July we told you we were sure. doing this. It should yeah. be ready." Yeah, yeah. So, uh, where do you think this is going? Like, this is a lot of political capital to be, uh, capital to be spending early on. Is that wise? Do you think? Where do you think this is going? Well, as I said, it's a signal uh, to everyone in the province and the country that Doug Ford will not be constrained or limited by legal rulings in in cases where he has a tool to overrule it. And I point that out again because I think it is important to say this is all legal. You know, for all of those jumping up and down, talking about, you know, democracy and the rule of law and all the rest of that, this is all legal. Is it all still legal even though it's happening within a, a municipal election campaign? Because that's what the judge was upset about, was the timing. It's legal because the charter says that the government has the right right to overrule of um, that. So I guess my point here, Alan, is the fact that what the judge said in regard to the fact that we're in the middle of a municipal election is irrelevant here. Um, Is is it irrelevant? well, I think uh, I think the people of Toronto who are upset about feeling like they had their rights trampled aren't going to say that it's not irrelevant. Mm-hmm. It's not irrelevant. But I, if you're asking me about what the bigger issue is, the relevance here, the real importance, is a willingness to invoke something. Right. You know, to to bring a bazooka, you know, to a <laughs> thumb fight. So really, uh, I guess we hate we have to wait until the next time. Till we get a true reaction from Ontarians, or unless, like you said, there's polling done and we find out what the reaction is. Uh, will you be surprised if there's a lot of people supporting what Doug Ford's doing? 
No, I, I don't. I won't be. Um, you know, we've had recent polling that, you know, showed, for example, the support on canceling the sex ed curriculum was about 50-50. Yeah. Which I think a lot of people were a little surprised at, yeah. thinking that that was a wedge issue with a very small vocal minority pushing that. Especially and, when, like, over 80% were fine with the content. Yeah, so, I mean... I think it's presumptuous of us to say what the feeling is. Again, I come back to the the thing that people don't like is a circus. Yeah. Like, people don't, you know, they will judge a government on its merits, on what it does and doesn't do on a bunch of different, uh, you know, sliding judgment scales. But when it comes to chaos and just looking like you, they don't know what's going on and everything's a court case and it's all protests, is Doug Ford there yet, do you think, Alan? No, no, absolutely not. This is early, early days. There's no indication that that is entirely the way it's going to be. But I think you have seen the early warning shots of what appears to be a very populist, mm. activist government that's going to do what it believes it has been elected to do, and there is going to be vocal and angry opposition right out front of the Queen, in Queen's Park and... As we saw today, even in the legislative chamber. Alan Carter has been with us, anchor and Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Make sure you're watching at 5.30 and 6 o'clock tonight. Alan, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Should be fun. Always a good time, Scott. (laughs) Always a good time. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Ian Lee Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My uh, pleasure, Scott. Are you on Canadian soil or are you still in Poland? Uh, I got back and I'm going back out in about an hour and a half for my final weekend. I teach three weekends in executive. It's a Canadian executive MBA um, and owned and operated by UQAM, University of Quebec at Montreal. And uh, So you're going my, back and forth. Uh, yeah, I don't normally do that, but my wife broke her ankle and oh, she no. needs support, so I... I, I, it's crazy going over three times in three weeks, but I'm doing it to come back and help her out. Well, good luck to you. I hope it all works Thank out. You. Thank, you. Uh, Thank you. Uh, before we get onto the Canada Post stuff, I, I got to yes. ask you your impression of what's happening at the Ontario legislature. I mean, I, I expected it. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be, I like to be, I guess, contrarian, uh, Scott, and, um, and say the, the following. I'm not uh, setting my hair on fire over the use of the notwithstanding clause. Uh, and I'm I'm nonpartisan. I assure you, I don't belong to any political party, and I do not donate money to any political party. But I've developed this uh, view, and I've certainly talked to my students over the years about it. That what makes England and uh, the UK, Canada, Australia, the, the Westminster countries, and of course the states which came out of that, are very unique. Is we've evolved democracy over 800 years since the Magna Carta. Where am I going? The essence of the, these systems, and there are small variations between these three or four countries, but it's pretty small, is that we have endless checks and balances. It's not just an election. People think, oh, yes, yes, we have elections. No, no, no. It goes way beyond that. We have checks and balances. Uh, students can challenge professors by appealing their grade or appealing their decision. We can challenge doctors and hospitals. We can go and lay complaints against journalists. There are endless checks and balances in our society, which is a very good thing because we've learned over 800 years that any power that is unaccountable and without any check and balance is not a good thing. But is he eliminating one of those checks and balances? Well, 
I am arguing exactly the opposite. The one area that has troubled me, and certainly there's three professors at the University of Calgary have written all their career about this. Uh, Professor Morton uh, was one of them, and it was the fact that the courts. Um, uh, there are no real checks and balances in the courts. They're appointed until age 75. And, you know, uh, pr- uh, uh, judges are not infallible. Neither are professors. I want to point that out. Neither are journalists. Neither are politicians. Neither are medical doctors. Neither are corporation CEOs. And so having, I always thought that the, the since it came, and I remember being a young man and watching it on television, when Pierre Elliott Trudeau and the premiers were debating to put in the notwithstanding clause. I remember it vividly. Yeah. And and I always thought it was a very unusual check and balance. It was only to be used in very, very unusual circumstances. It isn't something you use once a week or once a month or once a year. But the idea of being able to have that check and balance for uh, on very unusual times um, again, over the judiciary, I know many people say that's a terrible thing. I don't believe it is because I don't believe the judges are infallible. I don't believe anyone is infallible. All humans are fallible. Is it they a jack? Mistakes. Is it a jackhammer to attack, though? Well, now, now we can get into the whether it was the uh, appropriate measure for this particular decision. I mean, I would have saved it. I mean, if I was the premier, and of course I'm not, but I would, I would not be afraid to use it if I was the premier. But I would use it for really, really, really big stuff. I mean, really hugely big stuff. Um, uh, maybe you know, like a pipeline, for example. Um, I could see Mr. Williams. Okay, let me stop you there, Ian. Okay. Is that where there's politics going on here? I mean, we're sitting yes. here watching a, pr- a prime minister who can't get a pipeline through despite uh, all the approval. It's getting stuck in court. Here's a, a premier who's saying, that ain't going to happen to me. I think there's a lot of politics. It's partly because of the unique character of Toronto. That is to say, there's a real split, as we all know. The urban downtown councillors, like in Ottawa and probably in Hamilton, I don't know, but in Ottawa and in Toronto, the downtown councillors tend to be very, very much left of centre. And I mean not moderately, yeah. but significantly left of centre. Anti-car, more and more bike lines, and then you get out to the burbs, and it's just a different world. Yeah. They're much more centrist, small C uh, conservative or small L liberal. And and so there, it's you know there's oil and water going on here, and so I think there's a lot of politics involved, and then of course there is the sensitivity around the notwithstanding clause. We don't want it used on a regular basis. I did some quick research, Scott. It's been used 15 times uh, across Canada, uh, only provincially. Federal has never used it. Quebec has used it the most. And nobody got their knickers in a knot and turned their hair on fire when Quebec was invoking it relatively frequently compared to other provinces. So, you know, it's not something we have to worry that... I I don't believe any premier is going to invoke it on a routine, regular basis. It's there as a very unusual check and balance on the judiciary. And and I don't think that that's... It's not going to turn us into a fascist state or into a Putin Russia. Uh, We're far too sophisticated. We've got far too many checks and balances. And it gets a real good debate going, which is good, about the limits of judicial power. And I think that there has been some judicial overreach in the last several years. Um, and I'm not suggesting all decisions. I'm saying some decisions uh, were involved judicial overreach. And in this particular instance, I thought it was an outrageous decision to say that the Charter of Rights, freedom of speech was violated when they were setting up new elections for new councillors. And the essence of, of, of an election is speech. So I mean the the whole the very the argu- the uh, the legal uh, arguments put forward by the judge I thought completely deconstructed themselves. That was a terrible decision, setting aside the politics. I mean, 
it was you know saying that it was threatening speech when the act that's being invalidated by the judge is setting up new elections. I mean, it, it, it contrad- he contradicts himself completely. How will Ontarians view this? Because there's, there's two issues here. There's number one, do they care about the size of uh, a Toronto City Council? I'm guessing no. Uh, uh, but right. the other issue is, is, again, is this overreacting to something and using something? Uh, is it an abuse of power? Right, right, right. On the first one, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, uh, Ford said that, and he's quite right. I, not too many people are going to go to the to the barricades and fight for more politicians being established in yeah. Ontario. Uh, I don't think that's going to win any points for anybody. Uh, but but you're quite right. Uh, I'm I'm not trivializing the fact that there's going to be many people who are going to say, "Wait a minute, this is overreach. This is an abuse of power." And it really comes down, I think, to what one thinks about the notwithstanding clause. In a, in a larger sense, I know there are professors and other uh, pundits and analysts who just they think it's an appalling abomination of democracy. And then there's others, including some professors who've written on this, including some legal scholars who are saying, no, 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 it's it's not that bad um, to have this kind of a check and balance. It's it's uh, very quickly, Scott. It's one of the things that's troubled me studying this all my life. Was uh, you know, I mean studying um, the decisions of judges generically? Was that there's no real check. I mean, you can say you can appeal the decision. Okay, fine, you're appealing to another person who's never been elected. I'm not suggesting judges should be elected. But eventually, you get to the Supreme Court, and there's absolutely no check and balance. And, you know, we once upon a time had a system very similar. We had the divine right of kings, where there was no check or balance on the person at the top. And that's why we evolved democracy, to say we cannot allow any institution, including the Catholic Church, or any religious church to be without checks and balances, or the media, or the universities, or the hospitals, or the schools, or corporations, or NGOs. Every one of these organizations have to have checks on them, even if they're only very infrequent. I just don't think it's a good system when we say that there's certain institutions whereby we can never challenge them whatsoever. And and this is really, we're coming down to a philosophical view of the courts. Are they beyond any checks and balances and reproach, or are there some at the extreme limit occasions when we can put, impose checks and balances on them? How is this going to end? At the end of the day, this will be a done deal. By the time it goes through the process, by next week, it will it, it will be invoked, yeah. and then uh, City Council at Toronto has to figure out a way how to make it all happen, and, and yes. then we move on. Exactly. I mean, it, I don't. Uh, Mr. Trudeau is not going to step in. There is um, probably a lot of Canadians don't realize this, but in the Constitution, there's a section that predates the notwithstanding clause, and it was put in back in 1867, which gives the federal government the authority to invalidate a provincial law. Now, in modern times, it's never been invoked. It may have been invoked back in the 10, 20s, or 30s, or something. I, I don't know, but it, it's it's that's truly the nuclear option. If the federal government, the government of Canada, the Parliament of Canada, invoked it and invalidated it in a law passed by the Alberta legislature or the Quebec legislature or the Ontario legislature, truly, um, all you know, just it would be just apocalyptic. Uh, the, and Trudeau has already said, "I'm not going there. I'm not doing that." How could he the, possibly, though, Ian? How could he possibly interfere with this when? When he's when he's dragging his heels on the pipeline. Well, that and secondly, I mean, I know I bothered a lot of uh, pundits and analysts, but you know, Ford stood up there and said, "Hey, I'm elected, and you guys aren't." And you know, people can say, "Well, no, 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 you can't use that argument because it's the courts." Well, we've been using it for the last five years in a very vigorous debate about the Senate. 
And we really do get our knickers in a knot and get upset the fact that they're a bunch of unaccountable, unelected people, even though they're appointed by somebody who is elected called the Prime Minister of Canada. <laughs> so, you know, there is some accountability there. Uh, but my point is, we seem to get really, really upset about the fact that the Senate, many Canadians are upset about the fact that the Senate is unaccountable and unelected. Well, there is conceptually and legally and factually no difference between the two. That is to say, the judges aren't, and I'm not advocating that they are uh, should be elected. I'm just simply saying that I think we have evolved a system where we really do believe that genuine sovereignty comes from the elected gut level of government. That is to say, the prime the government of Canada or the government of Ontario. And and I don't think that uh, Mr. Trudeau would be it would be wise to step in because Doug Ford was elected by the people of Ontario, hmm. just as he was elected by the government of Canada. And I think it would be better that he just step back and let the people. You know, let the politicians go at each other back and forth, and, and the pundits and the analysts analyze it, and then and see where the cards fall. You used the phrase earlier on, uh, hair on fire. Why does it appear that everybody's hair is on fire and the majority of Ontarians are, are upset with this? Do you think they are? I, uh, I, don't, I wouldn't say the majority, but certainly the people that write and comment, uh, you know, analysts, pundits, uh, journalists, uh, opposition politicians, NGOs, uh, are really upset. And because it's perceived to be tampering with the courts, which of course has been pretty well exempt or immune from any um, uh, real criticism in Canada uh, and the other uh, parliamentary countries. I would just simply note, though, Scott, if you look at the states, the the uh, the judiciary has become much more politicized, and I don't just mean starting with Trump. I mean it's got if you go you know it was Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the 1930s who tried to pack the Supreme Court by putting more than 12 on because he didn't have a majority of his own people supporting his legislation. So it, from that point on, the American judiciary has become very politicized because a they're not elected. You can't remove them from the court; they're on for life. And and uh, and as a consequence, they they make they are increasingly interventionist. That is to say, they make political decisions that historically governments made. And so the Americans realize this, and so they the the fight over the Supreme Court and the appointment of judges has become more and more political. What we may see coming out of this is the increasing recognition of how political the nature is, and I don't mean necessarily you know, liberal versus conservative, but political in the sense that the judges also have biases. The judges also have philosophy and a philosophical, yeah. ideological outlook on the world that permeates their decisions. And and for me, that doesn't mean you get rid of judges. It means, it, it suggests to me, it's a, a compelling argument for having a notwithstanding clause, which is used very sparingly and rarely. But, but to answer your question... It does get the, uh, I hate to use the word, the elites, but the people that talk about this for the chattering class, as Jeffrey Simpson yeah. used to call it. it, the chattering class, their hair is on fire. I don't think the average Canadian is or the average Ontarian is, but I think the chattering class's hair is on fire. So how does this change the game of politics? And I know you're a business prof, and I'm going to ask you how the, how the business uh, community is viewing all of this, but how does this change the game of politics moving forward? Because there is the threat, there's certainly a lot more pressing issues than this to be using this uh, this clause on and and again whether it's sex ed or, or some of the other controversial yeah, yeah. issues he could also use it on so how does it change the game moving forward you think I think that's even more important question because there's a real, real concern in the business community 
certainly the stuff I'm reading, and it's not just the national papers. I'm talking to business people every day because I get out of the university all the time and talk to you know people of the business world, the real world. And uh, there's a sense that you know we're going down the wrong road uh, in terms of our investment policies and our policies on development and economic development, and that there is no hope. And what I think this does, even though this isn't about an economic decision, this decision by the Ford government was about the Toronto Council, but it, I think it suddenly opened people's eyes across the country. It was sort of an oh-my-God moment or an oh-my-goodness moment. Uh, like, wow, I didn't realize that. You mean we're not just, you know, uh, helpless pawns of uh, of really unpopular decisions of the courts? And and uh, so now some people would say that's terrible that people are going to start thinking in those terms. Others would say, well, there, it reduces a sense of despair and helplessness for those who think that, you know, we've run into this roadblock. I mean, we've run into an absolute dead end in terms of uh, investment and, uh, you know, mining and oil and gas and pipelines and so forth. And so I think it's going to change the dynamic of the debate going forward. And that, I'm not talking now about city council, okay? I'm talking about yeah. much bigger issues like pipelines. Yeah. You know, and, uh, I mean, you know, I was, I actually, uh, was talking to uh, a journalist last week about the pipeline, this, uh, the, uh, uh, yeah, the decision of the federal court, and uh, and they found in the uh, their ruling, they said that the NEB, the National Energy Board, should have considered the impact on on tankers going up and down the coast of BC. Right. That's not in the NEB mandate. It's not in any legislation of Canada. It was truly made up whole cloth by the federal court. And and I thought if there isn't. <laughs> Uh, if that doesn't lend itself to uh, the invocation of the notwithstanding clause, I don't know it does, because it was uh, everyone agreed there was no basis in the existing law for invoking that as the basis of the decision to invalidate and stop the pipeline. And I thought there's an example of where you could invoke the notwithstanding clause. And to answer your question again, to come back to it, I think this may set a precedent for much bigger issues, because now governments like Alberta, uh, uh, Saskatchewan uh, and possibly BC on the other side may start to think, gee whiz, you know, if we get a really unpopular decision that's going against what we consider the interest of our province, well, we have another way, we have another tool to use Mr. Ford's, uh, for mm. Ford's phrase. All but right. Ian There's Lee has been with us, Sprout, uh, Sprout School of Business, Carleton University. We're supposed to talk about Canada Post, but this news of the day, uh, yeah. we it's over, over uh, overrode that issue, and we will chat again on the other. Ian, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Ian Lee, Sprout School of I Business, pleasure. Carleton thank University. You. Thank you, Ian. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, I guess Paul McCartney has uh, done a real juicy interview with uh, GQ magazine and revealing some of the secrets uh, behind the band and, and just dirt that Beatles fans, um, I'm not sure, would roll their eyes at or go, oh, really? Uh, let's bring in Eric Alpert, music publicist, commentator, content creator. He is with us now. Uh, as always, Eric, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, no problem. Who's this Paul McCartney that you mentioned? I've never heard of him. Before. I don't know. I don't know. You know what? There's another discussion to add on to the one we were going to have, uh, the one we had the other day about Aretha. So what happens when Paul McCartney passes? Um, the world stops, and that's it. And then we all just give up. Um, I think when Paul McCartney <laughs> passes away, um, it will be likely the, the biggest music, maybe celebrity death in our lifetime. I mean, I truly, it's not going to be gaudy. It's not going to be um, exuberant or, 
you know, a week's long worth of uh, viewing, like maybe, you know, Aretha or James Brown. But I think it's going to make the world just shed a little bit of a tear the world over. Biggest since Elvis? I think even bigger than Elvis. Um, Because I think even though that Elvis had a good 30 years of musicianship behind him, Paul McCartney is 72. And he's been famous. Probably the most famous person, maybe top five, to walk on the earth in the last 50 years. I'm sure that you can go to remote villages and maybe hum one or two of the Beatles songs and they're going to know who it is. Hmm. All right, so is Paul McCartney enlightening us and Beatles fans with (laughs) with all the dirt or is he just selling gossip in a new album? No, I I think this is really, this has been a really interesting week for Paul McCartney. He's got a brand new album out called Egypt Station. And, you know, he's not out there talking to everybody, but he's certainly talking to the people that... He knows that if he reveals a tidbit or two, it's going to uh, go viral. And certainly he started off doing that with Howard Stern last week. And now with this interview with Chris Heath from GQ Magazine, who, you know, sometimes we don't give writers enough credit for these things. But Chris Heath has been around for about 20, 25 years, used to write for Details Magazine and wrote the long profile pieces that I've always enjoyed reading, 16,000 words about an artist or a topic. And that's kind of gone a little bit by the wayside. But when you have that much time with an artist or with a public figure, you get to know them a little bit. Their guard goes down a little bit. So it's not a quick 15-minute phoner from halfway around the world, and you just kind of need to say what you need to say. But I think he revealed a, a, a number of things this week that would even shock the the, the most Beatlist fans. So what stands out for you in this, Eric? Um, I, I think one of them um, has to be the fact that Kanye West once offered to produce Paul McCartney's new album, because that shouldn't be a surprise on the surface, is that Paul McCartney released a song um, a number of years ago with Kanye West and Rihanna, Um, and, you know, Paul McCartney's always been at the forefront of music. He's always been a very experimental kind of a guy when you really get down to it. Egypt Station's best songs aren't even pop songs. They're actually the seven-minute eight-minute songs that are more, you know, allows him time to stretch. So that would have been a real interesting name to drop because, you know, Kanye West is a pretty much a a really big lightning rod for criticism. Um, You either love him or you hate him. And uh, just the fact that, you know, that they were actually talking about it would have been an interesting idea. Why not? Even like one or two tracks. Absolutely. I I think that, you know, when you've got the power of a Paul McCartney or Eric Clapton or Phil Collins or Rod Stewart, go nuts. You deserve it. Go do something amazing and different. And of course, you know, I think the biggest one is that um, the Beatles used to masturbate together. Yeah, really. (laughs) So let me just throw that in there as well. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah. How do you follow that up? Maybe Um, that's why Kanye didn't want to produce. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe, but you know, it didn't happen recently. It happened when they were kids, so boys, I guess, will be boys. But it turns out that when the Beatles, before they were the Beatles and they were in the group called the Quarrymen, um, Paul McCartney and John Lennon were simply teenagers in Liverpool and daydreaming about sex symbols like Bridget Bardot, because at the time there wasn't the internet, so pornography and sex photos weren't readily available and they would basically you know have their fun but the interesting part of it is that you know they would be shouting out 
names of sex symbols to one another to visualize what that person was like. So Paul McCartney would shout out Bridget Bardot and then have their fun until, you know, one day, you know, John Lennon with a sense of humor shouted out Winston Churchill, (laughs) which I'm sure ended that that, uh, that masturbation session really uh, really quickly. Oh, man. Yeah, it's not like they were grown men. It's not like they did this in their 30s. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that would be a story. That would be a story. Uh, What about the Quincy Jones comment on his bass playing? Well, this is interesting because Quincy Jones did an interview with GQ magazine a, a, couple, a number of months ago, and he called the Beatles the worst musicians in the world. And in speaking to GQ, Paul McCartney revealed how Quincy Jones rang him up to apologize for those statements after his daughters basically berated him and say, you can't say this kind of stuff and guilted him into apologizing and making those calls. Now, the public apology for Quincy Jones was like, you know, he didn't know where his mind was. He kind of went off on a tangent. He blamed it a little bit on old age. But to Paul McCartney, he's actually claiming that he never said that in the first place. And that, to me, is a bigger story of, I don't know if he said, yeah, I never really said it. I'm sorry for saying it, which is much different than I never really said it. And the writer made it up. And I think that that could be the next story that comes out if people latch on to it. Are people judging at this point in McCartney's uh, career whether the Beatles were a great band or not? I guess that debate will go on forever. Yeah, I think that they're still judging him um, as much as ever before. I think that this is actually worse because now that we all have our own opinions and we can share them with the world on Twitter to, you know, a giant you know, silo and have everybody and nobody listening at the same time. I think, though, where where it's different is that I think he gets a pass. So I think for an album review, I think you start Paul McCartney off at like 7 out of 10 immediately. Hmm. And then you go up from there based on who he is. Paul McCartney is not going to put out a 2 out of 10 album. There's just no way. He's got plenty of people around him and if he thinks that he is going to put out a dog of a record then i think that what he does is he does it under an assumed name or an alias like he did about Mm. two decades ago where he created an electronic dance album under the name the fireman because he didn't know after all these years of being paul mccartney whether or not if a new generation of music lovers who love electronic music and dance music and edm if they would accept him and it turned out that they did under the name the the Firemen, and nobody knew for about seven or eight months that that album that people were reviewing, giving nine out of ten and ten out of ten. Who is this guy? Who is this person? Once Paul McCartney revealed that it was him, it just ended up to be in the legendary status of his solo album. Is that perhaps the same reason why he felt he didn't want or couldn't use Kanye? I, I think he. I, I think. There, there might have been two reasons for that, that he didn't end up using Kanye. One is that he knew that Kanye West, if there's any person in the world that would overshadow Paul McCartney's work, it would be Kanye West. So it would be Kanye West's influence over Paul McCartney, and I don't think Paul McCartney would enjoy that whatsoever. I think the second part of it is that I think Paul McCartney loves to go into um, different styles of music, certainly you know, his his song with, with Kanye and Rihanna just touched in the urban world, the hip-hop world, the rap world a little bit, but I don't think he wants to live there. And also, I think as much as I love Paul McCartney, I would just be a little bit afraid that he would be getting slammed for cultural appropriation too much. Wow. How can you slam him from cultural uh, appropriation when you listen to the early Beatles' work? It's all rip-off of, of, you know, black American R&B music. 
because I think that once you end up into a situation where you're you're left to other people's opinion being fact by being written about enough times, if Paul McCartney came out with a rap album, all it would take are three people on Twitter to end up in a story in Time magazine saying Paul McCartney releases rap album and Twitter isn't so happy about that. And then you end up with three people who have less than four followers complaining about that. I don't think it's right, but I don't necessarily think it's wrong either. I think that when you do something different in the world, the criticism is going to come fast and furious. Look at what happened, you know, only a couple of days ago um, with Norm MacDonald's new talk show. He did one interview. He wanted to come across as sympathetic to people who have been, um, you know, caught in the yeah. Me Too movement yeah. and have been found not guilty. And it could almost literally end his Netflix show even before it airs. So I think you run the risk of doing something a little bit different, and then you're going to get criticism, and then that's what the media latches onto. What about if he did it under another name again? I think that would be brilliant. Um, I, I think if anybody would understand what 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 black music and that term would mean to somebody like him, because that's what it was called even before it was called, you know, during the time when it was called race music. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think if anybody understood what African-American musicians or black musicians from the UK can bring to the table, you know, he's got a pretty diverse band right now. So he understands soul. He understands R&B almost better than anybody else alive right now. Would so that not get him a pass then for doing such a project? No, because I think that there's always people on social media who, who want to be part of the story. Does he care about that at this point of his career? I don't think he does, but I think that the media is always looking for somebody yeah. to to um, to latch on to to try to get more clicks. I think the headline Twitter is upset that Paul McCartney comes out with an R and B album. You know, he got quite a bit of criticism. You know, back in the day when he did those duets with, um, you know, with with Stevie Wonder, with Michael Jackson, with Say Say Say, and Ebony and Ivory, mm. it was just like, who is this guy? But then people that don't know Paul McCartney would give him the pass, and rightfully so. I think you've got to worry about those maybe 15 to 19-year-olds who never heard of the Beatles forget about Paul McCartney. Will we hear more gossip? Um, I think that you're going to hear a little bit more stories coming out. Um, you know, the album is still pretty fresh in the media's mind, in his mind. He's going back out on tour. He's playing North America, including several dates in, the, um, in, the, uh, in specific parts of Canada, like Edmonton and Calgary. I think that we're not done yet, because I think as soon as Paul talks about the Beatles, I think it has to be news. Uh, be a Beatle biopic, why not? Why haven't we seen that? Um, I think that if anybody's going to tell the story, it's going to be the Beatles themselves. Mm. I think that they keep so much of their reputation and their music under lock and key that um, every time that the Beatles want to release something and go back into their history, usually around September or November, every year they release something for the holidays, whether it's Let It Be Naked or the Beatles anthology yeah. or the one album or the Beatles book or the miniseries. The Beatles do not like to have other people get to control who and what they are. They've already done that, and they got burned with um, with Alan Klein, who managed the band at the tail end of their career, did some really bizarre deals that cut the Beatles out, lost them a ton of money, allegedly, according to Paul, and I think that they're all being very smart because they know what they're sitting on. If anybody's going to come out with something, it's going to be the Beatles themselves. Uh, Grammy, do you see a Grammy with this album? I see, um, maybe not necessarily for the big 
four, like the album of the year, yeah. or song of the year, single of the year, or record of the year. But I think probably pop vocal. I think best male vocal. Um, you'll 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 see a couple from Paul McCartney for sure. He has to be a contender whenever he releases something. Eric Elper has been with us, publicist, music commentator, content creator, and of course, shameless idealist. Uh, always and Beatle fan and Beatle fan. Eric, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. No problem. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. We'll talk soon. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.